Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books in Science Fiction, a podcast for those who read, write, and just generally enjoy science fiction. I'm Rob Wolf, and this is the Brain Without a Body episode. Today, I'm excited to have for a second time on the show author Ken Liu, whose collection The Hidden Girl and Other Stories came out at the end of February. Ken was on the show before in 2015 to talk about The Grace of Kings, the first volume in his silk punk epic fantasy series, The Dandelion Dynasty. And at the time, we also talked about his translation of The Three Body Problem by Tzu Xin Liu. Since 2015, Ken has written more books and more short stories and translated a lot more Chinese science fiction into English. His work has earned Nebula, Hugo, and World Fantasy Awards, as well as honors in Japan, Spain, and France, among other countries. And I am delighted that he's with me on the line from his home in Massachusetts. Welcome back to the pod. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me back. The Hidden Girl and Other Stories is your second collection. How do you know when you have enough stories or, I suppose, the right stories to come out with the collection? And let me just say, I I might have thought at one point it was about quantity. You know, do I have enough stories to make a collection? But Clearly, in this collection, a lot of the stories are linked by theme, and even in some cases, characters repeat. The stories are literally linked by plot and the evolution of the characters. So for you, clearly, it's not just about numbers. Yeah, it's, you know, I I suspect that every author who puts out collections have their own theory on what the right philosophy of a collection is. For me, it was really about whether I felt like I had reached another stage in my career where I could do a retrospective on what I've done and use the collection to say something different from my first collection. And I felt at the point uh, when the idea for this collection you know, first started that I had gotten to the point where I felt that was appropriate, um, that I could put together a new collection that said something different, that represented other concerns and thematic musings I had uh, since the first collection came out. And your first collection was The Paper Menagerie and Other Stories. That's right. That's right. So what are the themes that you think tie these stories together in The Hidden Girl and Other Stories? And how is it different? What's, What's going on that's different here? I think there's there are two things that sort of crystallized for me uh, between the time when the paper menagerie came out versus the, the hidden girl. One is more about my thoughts on what sort of speculative fiction I wanted to write. Um, it turns out to be that I, I was interested in stories about how to remain human in the face of cataclysmic change. The other was more motivated about a more internal struggle, um, and that was 
coming to terms with the idea that you had to tell stories out of love rather than out of fear. So I think this collection represents my sort of an articulation, if you will, of my thoughts on those two themes. Well, there is a lot of love in these stories because there's a lot of family connections in these stories. And maybe we can explore some of the particular stories and in doing so, talk about the themes that tie them together. A lot of the stories, particularly the first few, I thought grapple with history, what it means to remember history, what memories and stories get passed down, what memories we're allowed to keep, and what traditions people continue or are allowed to continue. And there's also this sense that people don't always feel as if they belong to the place where they were born. And in the first story that jumps out, uh, Ghost Days, that story goes from three different settings. There's the planet called Nova Pacifica, set, and that part of the story is set in 2313. And it jumps to East Norbury, Connecticut in 1989 and to Hong Kong in 1905. And in each section, there's a main character who feels out of place because of colonialism in one instance or because they're an immigrant or in the case of the young girl who's in the Nova Pacifica section set in the future on this other planet, she's genetically modified to be adapted to this harsh environment. And then through it all, there's also this object that ties them together. So I'm sort of like trying to tell the story without actually telling it. Maybe maybe you could talk about the story, walk us through it a bit more so listeners get a feel for it and talk about what what you were exploring there. Well, that was a really great summary. I mean, that was amazing, actually. Thank you. Totally. I wouldn't have been able to uh, do it so succinctly. I couldn't have done it with without you having written it, of course. So, <laughs> um, so I, I think what I was trying to get at in that story is, um, so uh, as you explained, the story is written in a unusual structure it's um it's three stories one nestled within the other in a recursive way so you start the first story and then you go back in time to start the second story and then you go back in time some more to start the third story and then you go back up the call stack as 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 you will to unwind the story all the way back out to the outermost layer um, and throughout it out, the one constant is this little artifact from Earth's past that links the three stories together as a kind of family tradition, a family memory. And the story overall is a meditation, really, on what it means to be connected to our past, to have a history. And how do you make that history new and rejuvenate it every time? So just take the Nova Pacifica story. The protagonist, the little girl in there, is post-human. She is the child of human colonists, but she has been genetically engineered to live on this new planet, to be adapted to its chemistry and its um, physiology. And she's in school. And so the teachers, who are humans, try to teach her about the history of humanity and humanity's past heroes. And she's very resistant to it because in her view, these are not her heroes and she doesn't have a connection to them. But by the end of the story, she willingly 
tries to participate in the ritual and to reenact the stories of these heroes, but with her own interpretation of what she's doing, um, with a new meaning on it. And what I think happens to a lot of us is this is very much what we have to go through. We have to, as we grow up, establish connection with our history. Um, you know, sometimes we're taught these things without necessarily knowing why they're relevant and, and what the point of it is. Um, and as we grow older, one of the things that happens to us is we slowly come to see the value of these stories and how they're meaningful to us. Um, and this goes into one of my philosophies, uh, which is about the importance of, of stories. Um, I don't think that we human beings as a species learn values in an abstract way. We don't learn values and virtues and all these things that are meaningful to our sense of self by abstract dictionary definitions. You know, try to think about words like generosity, honesty, courage. You don't really emotionally become involved with these words in the form of abstract dictionary definitions. Almost always what happens is you have in your mind a, a prototype story that exemplifies that virtue, uh, whether it's a loved one showing courage uh, when you were a child or uh, someone you admire displaying professional generosity. But the way you come to internalize these values is often through these stories uh, that, that make the values come alive for you. And so as we grow older, as we become more experienced, these values become meaningful to us because the stories that we first learn as just stories told to us become living legends and then eventually become actual living examples that we try to embody ourselves as we do something to exemplify them for the next generation. And so Ghost Days is, is about that process of how we become more human, but also at the same time independent uh, from our history by taking these old stories and then making them our own and living through them to create new stories for the next generation. Related to that, I thought, was that each setting takes the character out of the context from which the original story came. They've moved from one place, one culture, one planet to another, which makes the history, on the one hand, seem less relevant to the person receiving it in the new place, and yet also in a way more relevant because that's all they have left of the place that they've left behind. Yeah, uh, although I don't think that's actually um, unusual. That's uh, that's actually the way all of us live. You know, the past is a country uh, to which you cannot return. You know, if you think about um, the place uh, and the time you grew up and, you know, you can't go back to it. It's gone. Even if you've stayed in the exact same place you were born, the time of, of, of your birth, that nostalgic place of childhood, you can never return to it. Um, and all of us have to come to uh, to an understanding to make peace with the fact that change is the only constant. We, we can't go back to the place that we grew up in. Um, that's just true of all human beings that have ever lived on the planet. It's just that modernity seems to make that sense sharper. Uh, and, and we seem to think that we're doing something new, but we're really not. All human beings who have ever lived on the planet have lived that way. 
trying to figure out how to make peace uh, with the history that, in fact, isn't one that they can return to. And so these stories are just about that very deep human experience of, of trying to come to terms with the fact that the world has changed, but we still have to find a way to continue um, the values that we hold dear uh, and to uh, make sense of, of our place in this unceasing, flowing river of time. We do live in such a fast-moving time. Sometimes I imagine, and maybe it's a time that never really existed, but when communities stayed in the same place for hundreds of years. I suppose that that is the case. When A year and a half ago or so, when I went to Pompeii, and I was surprised to hear that it had been settled for hundreds and hundreds of years, and I thought of all those people who had lived there and enjoyed being there, and and the constancy, perhaps, that they enjoyed. Of course, maybe they didn't. There probably were all kinds of social upheavals. But in my mind, I thought of a kind of constancy that, of course, changed when it was destroyed in a volcanic eruption. But, yeah, right, but right. Like the way an Im immigrant experience might be a disruption of a family that had been rooted in a place for many hundreds of years, that sort of thing. It seems to accentuate that very fact that you, you were speaking of, which is true, that the past is a, a place we can't return to. It, it's it's true, yeah. You know, I we, we often sort of think about or speak about how um, modernity gives us this sense of displacement, of rootlessness. I'm skeptical whether there's anything about, you know, migration or modernity that's particularly um, acute in that sense. I think that the idea that, you know, in the past that we could live the very same lives as our parents. And, and I, I, I'm very doubtful that was ever true. Um, and I, I'm very doubtful of the idea that the sense of continuity of life not changing was ever um, uh, reality. Uh, I tend to believe that the idea of change and, and the sense of change of the world shifting under us and that the old rules no longer apply, I tend to think that has always been true because if you sort of go back and look at history, you know, whether it's Europe or the Americas or Asia, um, if you zoom in on any sort of 50-year period, um, you can sort of realize there's always been cataclysmic change, wars, displacements, um, you know, think about, you know, what it was like near the uh, end of classical Maya civilization uh, or what it was like in Europe during the uh, the great uh, nationalistic wars, it, it's it's almost always been the case that if you take a 50-year period and the experience between two generations, there are huge, massive changes. So the sense of rootlessness, of, of having to remake sense of history and to make it all meaningful for us again, I feel that's a constant for every generation since the beginning of time. That's reassuring in a way. It's, I, I don't know why I like, like that, that everyone's sort of treated equally throughout the eons, perhaps. We all suffer a little bit of that displacement. Yeah, I think so. I think that sense of being lost in time, of, of having to you know, come to terms with uh, this idea that you have of your parents as a child and then realizing that it's not the full picture as you get older uh, and realizing that the sense that what they were teaching you was irrelevant and then trying to extract meaning from it uh, and figure out which of those stories you want to pass on to your children. I think those are questions we've always been asking ourselves. Um, and I always wanted to show that that's always been true by writing, a, you know, a, a bit of speculative fiction to sort of show that 
no matter how far back in time, that that sense of displacement has always been there. There's another theme which was in Ghost Stories and in a number of the other stories, like the next story in the collection, Maxwell's Demon, which is this sense of not belonging, of feeling like you don't quite fit. And in those two stories at the beginning of the collection, there's explicit racism, which sort of underscores that feeling of not belonging. In Maxwell's Demon, you're following an American woman of Japanese ancestry who is among those held in the concentration camps in the American West during World War II, which I think most people know is a very shameful part of uh, American history. And it's very painful to hear her called horrible slurs. And yet she remains loyal to America, which is her birthplace, even when she ends up getting deported and she's called upon to, to be a spy. And then it turns out that even going back, because she goes back, well, she doesn't go back to Japan because she never had been to Japan. But when she goes to Japan, she finds out that her ancestors, or maybe she knew this, but were part of a community that had suffered the prejudices of the mainstream Japanese, so like a sub-community. And so she's an outsider wherever she goes, and there she's a spy, which is kind of the ultimate outsider. You really hit hard on that theme of of feeling like you don't belong, and yet she remains true to an idea. You know, she remains true to this idea of America, and she's also true, I think, to her own history, too, because there's there's ghosts and a connection she has to, to this community that her ancestors came from. Yeah, I, I think the, the story, uh, Maxwell's Demon, is... Um, you know, I think I think it's one of those stories. Uh, maybe all my stories are like that. That's actually not amenable to reduction to a, a message. So sometimes it's hard to describe to people what it's about because it's not actually about anything that I can put into um, an essay. So her her story is is complicated, right? Because as you point out, other people call her Japanese American, but that's actually not how she thinks about herself. She's Okinawan American, if you want to think about it that way, or she's just plain American, um, or, you know, however she wants to label herself. But uh, that's not the label she would attach to herself, um, even though um, uh, within the context of the era, that is how other people describe her. Um, those uh, who were white would uh, try to claim her as Japanese-American and reduce her to that. And the Japanese Imperial Army uh, would reduce her to, you know, a, a loyal Japanese who has rebelled against the oppressive Americans. Uh, but, you know, she's Okinawan, um, and that that is her heritage. Uh, but in terms of how she sees herself... Um, she sees it in terms of, of family, of home, of her attachment to the place uh, uh, that she grew up in, which is Seattle. So what I think she does uh, with her life is to question the idea we have of what it means to you know, have these very abstract, high-level identities imposed on us, which is not true to our lived experience. Her, the way when she thinks about homeland, she thinks about Seattle. 
Um, but when she thinks about her heritage, she thinks about Okinawa and, and the long line of, of language, of religion, of spirituality that she's a part of. And Maxwell's Demon is ultimately about, you know, her as, uh, as a physicist uh, and, and her difficult decision uh, and, and the complex role she played of trying to forge her own path when other people are trying to tell her uh, that the, there are these imaginary communities and imagined identities, whether it's Japanese or American or Japanese-American, none of which she particularly feels belongs to her, um, and, and all these labels being pressed on her. And I, again, I think this is actually a very universal experience. We all sort of have the experience of not wanting to be labeled, of, of being, being put into categories that we don't, we naturally feel a sense of resistance to. Um, you know, modern nationalism is all about these imagined communities. Um, and to belong to imagined communities, you sort of have to give up a little bit of yourself uh, to allow yourself to be subsumed into larger labels that other people want to impose on you. And I think all of us as individuals are resistant to that. Uh, and so the question is, you know, why do we feel the compulsion sometimes of wanting to belong to these imagined communities uh, when they have no relationship to to our lived experience? Well, sometimes we do because adopting these imagined communities is a way to resist um, oppression from other imagined communities, uh, from other people who wish to belong to those communities and then impose their power on us. Uh, and so in the case of you know my protagonist, that's what happens. She's forced to adapt the idea of being Japanese-American uh, when no other choice was available to her. But she constantly tries to assert um, her individual humanity and, and, and her, willing, her very real family-based, experience-based com communities. Those are the communities that she asserts against these abstractions uh, being pushed on her. And in the middle of a terrible war, uh, in which these individual experience-based communities are destroyed, um, she has to hold on to that, uh, to them as, as, as hope, um, as the only bulwarks against uh, all encompassing totalitarian fascist and actual war. But in the end, I, I think in some ways she succeeds. In other ways, she does not. And, and the story sort of explores what are the limits of, of this kind of individual assertion of self-definition against these totalizing narratives other people are always trying to impose on individuals. Well, identity and the individual and retaining your individuality, that's a theme of, I think, a lot of the stories. And uh, there's another one I thought maybe we could discuss a little bit. It's sort of one of the darker ones, I think, uh, Thoughts and Prayers, which addresses three of the most horrific phenomenon of our time, I think, mass shootings, trolls, and social media. In that story, a mother basically brings her daughter, who is the victim of a mass shooting, she keeps her memory alive uh, to serve as an advocate in favor of gun control. And so I guess she's uploading her daughter's images and films and things to turn her into an advocate for gun control, but all that gets hijacked by trolls. 
in a way that is really destructive to the girl's memory and to the, this woman and the, the family that remains, her husband and the surviving daughter. And it's very ugly and heinous, you know, these really horrible videos they make. And no one seems to win in this story. The message seems to be that it's, and I don't want to say there is a message because you say, I don't want to be, re- <laughs> I don't want to be reductive. Um, what, what I'm, one of my takeaways is that- Yeah, yeah, totally. Go for it. It felt, it felt like it's f- futile to fight with technology, like either to use the technology, to fight against the technology, the trolls are going to win, just like the gun lobby, it feels like, is going to win. Yeah, I mean, it does feel like that sometimes in life, you know what I mean? Like, sometimes when you watch the news, it it really does feel like that, right? Everything is futile. Like, we had this huge, wonderful, idealistic vision for what the internet can do for individual freedom, for empowering individuals, and then we end up, you know, with the world we actually live in, which is everything seems to be a, a platform controlled by some massive corporation and we're all little digital serfs living on these platforms. You know, if, you, if you're very creative and you try to make beautiful things and you try to put them out on YouTube to, you know, monetize your, your creativity a little bit uh, while sharing what you love with the world, what what ends up happening, of course, is you become actually uh, owned by the very corporate platform that you're living on. Uh, YouTube controls your entire ability to monetize your own creativity. Uh, the minute YouTube decides suddenly that somehow you violate one of their terms or you become, you know, you violated copywriting some some way, they can demonetize you just like that. Uh, and your entire livelihood and reach for audience is gone. Uh, or if you're, you know, somebody who has built up a publishing platform and, and reached an audience and, and you've given in to the temptation of publishing on Medium or, or Facebook or what have you, uh, again, you've, you've seemed to have submitted to a, a massive digital overlord who can, um, at its own whim, for its own reasons, immediately demonetize you just like that. This seems to be the dystopia that we fall into in which technology that's meant to free us ended up cutting off our access and, and leaves us with very little choice to, to assert uh, and connect on our individual basis. I, I think what I wanted to do with the story uh, is to sort of explore the other side of this technological dystopia that we live in, which is our obsession with narratives, with stories that somehow allow us to perform our empathy. And this is sort of a thing that I've I've become more and more skeptical and more and more concerned with. So oftentimes, right, what what the way we praise a, a piece of art or a, a creator or somebody who has uh, become a cultural icon is to say that they've humanized some condition, that they've humanized some suffering, right? So if a book is about the experience of prisoners, um, it, it has to, quote unquote, humanize the prisoners and, and to, to make their suffering relatable to us in some way. Or if, uh, if it's a, a refugee narrative, it has to be a story that somehow humanizes, quote unquote, the fugitive, the the the, the experience of being a refugee, um, that allows us to sympathize with them. And it seems like we're not asking the question, which is why is that necessary? Why do we demand that victims perform 
to arouse our sympathy? Why do we demand that human suffering must be told in some consumable story before we would recognize that they're human? It seems to me that we ought to accept as a given that the victims who died in a shooting are in fact human beings who have been horribly killed. We don't need to have their stories told in a humanizing way to arouse our sympathies. We shouldn't, at least. But it seems like in our community, in our society today, where attention is such a scarce resource, we have to constantly actually tell these stories to, to, to demand that we pay attention to them, to put a face and a name onto some abstract vision of suffering. And I, I, I really am very concerned uh, about that demand for victims to perform for our benefit. It seems that we fall into the trap of, of living in a media landscape in which that kind of thing is accepted as normal, that we seem to be okay with demanding folks who are suffering to, to perform their pain. And I'm not okay with that. I, I, I think we've gone down the wrong route of demanding that sort of thing before we're willing to give our sympathy. We shouldn't. And trolling is very much related to that. The, the trolls are basically tapping into the darker underside of that demand for narratives of suffering by parodying our um, desire for for the perfect victim and and then by by performing a very cynical twist on this demand for the perfect victim narrative um, I think trolls are actually showing in some ways our collective callousness in the attention economy where attention you know need to be sold for profit uh and 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 we we start to demand that victims live up to uh the narratives we want them to to live and uh i i feel like there's a lot of complicated social emotions and, and complexities that we're not working through uh, and it's not as simple as just saying that trolls are terrible people um, in some ways we all are terrible people uh, in the first place by demanding these stories it's fascinating what you're saying, and I'm just trying to think about what we know about human experience and response to tragedy. And I mean, it is kind of a cliche to say that a million people dying, people can't really have feelings about it. But if there's one little girl stuck down a well, people get very upset and impassioned and have empathy for her. But it, it has to do, well, what does it have to do with our inability to imagine the faces of those million people, it's too overwhelming. It, it's, you're asking like one of the hardest questions, you know, it really is a, a super difficult question because you're absolutely right. You know, on the one hand, you know, when you talk about, say, the coronavirus killing thousands of people, it, it becomes reduced to a number uh, because we have no stories uh, to, to latch onto. There's no human face to this. But why do we demand one? And, and as you point out, we actually seem to be biologically incapable of exercising our sympathy and our ability to 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 empathize with you know quote unquote the other without stories like that. The way I think about it is maybe there is something about social media and and this hyper connected world we live in that makes us less human, and I think it has to do with scale, right? I I, I think. The thing that we're talking about, this, this inability to treat what happens to a million people as a tragedy unless we have a face to latch onto, I think this has to do with, with scaling and, and failures of scale. We evolved to 
be able to to interact uh, in a real way with social communities of just a few hundred people, right? We that's the human scale society that we're supposed to be able to live in. This is that's the world we evolved into. Um, and I think one of the things about modernity that really is new is we've been thrown into this world in which we're connected with thousands of people, sometimes millions. If you're on Twitter, uh, strangers can at any time come and tell you you're a terrible human being and, and swear at you just popping out of nowhere. When you can do that, when, when you've been thrown into a community of millions or tens of millions, all of a sudden none of your human scaled instincts work anymore. Everything becomes all at the same time more anxious and more um, anxiety, uh, more anxiety inducing, but also more just sort of to protect yourself. You kind of have to become more callous, uh, almost just as a self-protective measure. So it, it is really hard. We, we, we are human beings forced to interact in a network that's not human scaled. And, and we don't know how to do that. Uh, and it's not just social media. It's, it's the very way politics has become perpetually nationalized and internationalized. And all politics you know, used to be local, but now it's, it seems like nothing, no politics is local. Um, and then that feels very deeply disturbing um, and dehumanizing to us because we're forced to now perform as actors of conscience uh, in a fundamentally inhumanly scaled network. Uh, and I think that's the fundamental problem posed by social media. Uh, when Mark Zuckerberg invented you know, Facebook, he, 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 well, I guess in some origin stories, depending on which origin story you believe, but one of the things he, he said early on about the mission uh, statement for Facebook was to connect everybody on the planet with everybody else. That, you know, seemed idealistic at the time, but in retrospect, now that we know what happens, it, it's, it's, it's a deeply dehumanizing thing, actually, to connect everyone with everybody else. Um, it deprives us of human-scaled instincts and, and human-scaled reactions. I, I think that really is part of the root of how, why it's so hard for us to come to terms with all the problems that social media is bringing to us. And I think it also deprives us of the ability to know if we are even communicating with a human because it could be a bot or, and this is my segue to the next question, it could be an uploaded consciousness, which, <laughs> yes. uh, which is dealt with in a lot of your stories, actually. There's a bunch of stories about the singularity, pre and post singularity and uploaded consciousnesses. And those stories are, are interconnected, many of them. And... One of the fascinating things, I think, about the stories is that to some, getting uploaded seems like the ultimate evil, and to others, it seems like the greatest good. And I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about that, maybe the story staying behind. It has a narrator who is scarred by the fact that his father had his dying mother, the narrator's dying mother, uploaded to a server apparently against her will, and then the father joins the mother. And in the son's eyes, it's basically a murder-suicide, but it becomes a very popular thing to do in this world, and eventually his sister does it, and then when this narrator grows up, he's terrified that his daughter is going to go ahead and do it because it's become such a popular thing to do in this 
depopulated world. People have their consciousnesses uploaded and their bodies, well, I guess are destroyed in the process of the uploading. But what the story also seems to be about is something we've talked about before, which is what happens from generation to generation. So you've got the grandparent who thinks that A is good, say, and then their kid rebels and thinks, no, no, B is better. And then the grandkids rebel again, and they swing back towards A, and they say, no, no, A is better. In this case, A is the uploading, and the B is the staying in the physical physical body and the physical world. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's a great way to make connections between these um, uploading intelligence stories and the generational misunderstanding stories of, of earlier on that, that we were discussing. So one of the things I wanted to mention uh, just quickly is that these interlinked set of stories about the singularity and uploaded intelligences, they're, um, they're the basis uh, for a new animated series from AMC called Pantheon. So AMC has greenlit production on it. Uh, they're getting two seasons of it. I think this is the first primetime animated series aimed at adults, a, a drama series that uh, a major network has done in the U.S., so it's pretty cool. Uh, wow, and, congratulations. And That's thank you. Thank great. you. So, these, so the stories we're talking about here are the stories that form the basis for the show. Um, so, you know, it's, it's clearly a theme that I've ruminated over and, and written a lot about. The way you presented the document is is perfect. That's that's exactly what it is. It's it's this whole idea that can we be uploaded into a computer, you know, and and then assuming that we can, what does that actually mean for for what it means to be human? Um, so for the mother of the of the narrator, um, right, as you point out, when she was dying, she was uploaded into a machine against her will. But what ha- it's it's what happens right after that becomes ethically interesting. Her her consciousness, if if we believe that her consciousness was in fact successfully uploaded, comes to appreciate this new state of existence. And she comes back and tells the son that this is wonderful. You know, I I I was wrong to have not believed that this was a good idea. And now I think it really is an awesome idea, if you will, not in so many words, but, but that's, that's, that's the idea. But the son does not believe that whatever this electronic consciousness is, the son does not believe it is, in fact, the continuation of his mother. He, he does not believe it. He doesn't really provide any evidence to justify his disbelief. He simply points out that the disembodied consciousness in the computer is is qualitatively a different thing than the human consciousness that was embodied in the human body from before. So whatever this electronic thing is, it's not his mom. So what she says has no relevance for how he wants to evaluate her experience, her experience for him stopped at the moment she was uploaded and therefore died. And it's a it's a it's a philosophically difficult question. You know, how how are you supposed to 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 evaluate this claim? How how do you judge whether a person has continued to live on in silicon or not? And what what are the criteria you use to determine if the person remains the person? Um, once their state of existence has changed completely in that way, um, and you know the story doesn't any off, doesn't offer any answers, um, it just poses that as a as a question for the characters to work through. 
Um, and as you note, the narrator and his daughter come to very different conclusions about what that means and, and, and whether human beings can, in fact, just quote unquote, upgrade their hardware and live on as human beings. And then there's a whole nother series of stories that I guess are the prequel to this and explain how this world actually came about. But I don't think we have time to talk about those. And I, I guess I want to wrap up the conversation uh, just talking a little bit about all the work you've done translating novels and dozens of short stories from Chinese to English. And you've helped introduce Chinese writers in some instances to an English reading audience. And I just wondered how that came about. Oh, yeah, totally. The way it came about was entirely fortuitous, um, which is actually another theme that I return to again and again in my fiction, which is that so much of our lives are just the result of, of complete random fortuitous chance. And there's no plot or arc to it. These things happen to you, but you know we we as a species we don't accept the world as random in that way. So we always have to create causes and effects and, and create a retrospective retrospective narrative of what happened to us in order to make sense of of the random of the essentially random nature of the universe. And so we end up creating a plot for ourselves for our own lives. Um, we become the heroes of our own epic fantasies. And, and that is how we give meaning to our lives. And a, a lot of my stories circle around the idea of, of this self-narrative, of this self-written epic fantasy, and, and how we derive meaning from it, and how to live a more fulfilling life. Sometimes you have to become the hero that you wish other people could be, and make your life meaningful that way. And, you know, I, I sort of ended up living a, a real version of this. Um, essentially what happened was, um, you know, I was working as a writer and publishing widely. And one day, a Chinese writer, uh, Chen Qiufan, who whose work I did not know and, and just didn't know him at all, wrote to me out of the blue and said that, you know, I read a few of your stories in English and I thought they were just really cool. Would you be interested in having them published um, in Chinese? Uh, which was not something I ever thought was even possible. I had no idea that, you know, China had uh, science fiction, contemporary sci-fi being published at all. So I said, oh, that would be great. I, I had no idea how to go about doing that. And Chen Jiufan, or Stanley Chen, as, uh, which is the English name he uses, he said, you know, I'll, I'll figure it out. And so he went through a huge amount of trouble to find and recruit translators and to get the rights and submit them to Science Fiction World, which is China's largest and, in fact, the world's largest science fiction magazine. So eventually, my stories were published. There are three of them. And I started getting, you know, readers in China and, and fan mail. And, you know, without Stan, essentially going through a huge amount of trouble to do all this, uh, that never would have happened. And, and he did it really just because he was a fan. Um, and he believed in helping other writers reach a broader audience. And so when I found out that he was a writer as well, I asked to read some of his stories. Um, and so he shared them with me. And, uh, you know, these were the first contemporary Chinese sci-fi stories I've ever read. And I thought they were just amazing. And, and I, I felt, um, I think, what he must have felt, which was 
here are some really cool stories. I, I really love to share them with other people. Um, and how do I make that happen? And, you know, there's a long tradition in the speculative fiction community of people just doing fandom things, which is, you know, we're, we're all writers, we're pros, but we're, we all started out as fans. And, you know, one of the things you do as a fan is you do things for free and you figure out for your friends and, and, and other people you admire, how do you help them reach more readers? How do you, how do you share this cool stuff you've discovered with more people so that more people can geek out with you? over all this cool stuff you found. So I asked Stan whether he um, had any English translations that could be submitted to uh, English magazines. And he said, well, you know, I, I, I don't, but I have one translation that was done by a professional translation company. You know, do you want to take a look at it and see if it's good enough to submit? And he sent it to me. Uh, turns out the translation was perfectly accurate, but just didn't capture any of his voice. It was, you know, one of those patent-like translations that was just not, not uh, I thought, suitable as a, as a literary creation. And I said, well, I have no idea what I'm doing. I've never done this before. But, you know, if, if you are willing to let me have a go at it, I can try to fix the translation or just redo it. And Stan said, totally fine, you know, go for it. And so I took that story and uh, I threw away the translation because it, it's just, there's no way you can I was a coder, and coders don't like fixing other people's code. We prefer to do things anew. So I decided to do the translation from scratch, and that meant I had to learn something I didn't know how to do. Um, so there was a huge amount of cramming of translation theory and apprenticing myself to learn from other masters of the art how you do this, because literary translation is very much an art, and it's a craft, and, and there's no way to learn it other than by doing it side by side with folks who know what they're doing and so you can learn how to do it. And eventually the translation I did of his story, The Fish of Li Jiang, became the first translation that Clark's World published. And Neil Clark has done enormous service uh, for popularizing translations into English in the first place. And the story ended up getting a lot of positive attention. Uh, and, you know, I thought, oh, wow, that's kind of cool. The, my, my fan service, my, my little bit of participation in fandom to, to help another writer reach more readers actually succeeded. And it's kind of cool. Uh, like I was saying earlier, you're always the hero of your own epic fantasy, but you're also supporting characters in other people's epic journeys. And I, amazingly enough, was able to play the supporting role really well and actually succeeded in helping someone. You know, a lot of times we all want to help our friends, but we don't really know if what we're doing actually is helpful or really, really brings them any benefit. But, you know, here's, here's an instance where I was lucky enough to have done something, a tiny little thing that actually did help my friends. So through Stan, I got to know lots of other writers in China. And when I liked their stories, when I thought that this was another piece that deserves to be shared, I would just try to translate it and bring it to a new audience. And so I had no interest in translation. I still don't. Uh, the only reason I do it is as a way to help friends. And it's nice that uh, the work has actually been helpful and uh, able to bring a couple of these writers great positive attention internationally and once you have an english translation of course um, you open up the doors to other languages because 
editors in Russia or Poland or Japan may not be able to read Chinese, but almost all of them can read English. And so once you have an English translation out there, they can evaluate it and decide if they want to publish more of it. So that's been a very positive result uh, from that little bit of, uh, of fandom participation and service I did. That's a great story. It's really a beautiful story. Let me ask you, and maybe there's no answer for this, but do you think there's something in, I mean, I'm fascinated by seeing the world through different cultural prisms. And I just wonder if you have found something in stories by Chinese authors that maybe people can't find or you don't see as much of in English language science fiction. I mean, science fiction that originates in the English language. That's actually a much harder question to answer than it might seem at first, because on the one hand, the answer is definitely yes, not least because when it comes to describing China, you know, Chinese writers do it in a way that uh, is, you know, the insider's perspective that comes with uh, the the equality of of truth of actually being able to know what you're talking about that writers who are not Chinese just can't do. Uh, that's true of, you know, every kind of lived experience. You're never going to have somebody who's an outsider to a community being able to actually describe that community with that kind of realness of, of actual observable truth, the way an insider to the community can. But on the other hand, all the writers that I've worked with and whose stories I admire are so different from each other that it's very hard for me to say that there's anything that unites them other than the fact that they happen to write in Chinese. It's it's sort of like if somebody were to ask, you know, as and say, what is it about American sci-fi that's unique? You know, what what is it that American sci-fi writers can say about the world that only they can say? And it's very hard to pin that down. Um, you know, almost any answer is going to have counterexamples and any answer is going to end up being not broad enough uh, just because, you know, the very idea of American sci-fi is amorphous. You know, people describe themselves as American. That's all that's required to be an American sci-fi writer. And if you pick any two American sci-fi books up the bookshelf, they chances are they're going to see the world in completely different ways. And it's very hard to say what is that indescribable quality that makes them all American sci-fi. What is it that unifies their worldview? And I, I find it to be the same with the Chinese writers. You, you can, on the one hand, say there's definitely something unique about the way they're describing things happening in China or futures inspired by what's happening in China. They just have an access and an understanding of reality of what it's like to live that experience that we don't. But on the other hand, if you want to extract that out and, and pin it down and say, here's the thing, here's the thing that I want to name as the distinction, I, I have to say I can't. I, I don't know how to how to describe that because there doesn't seem to be something that you can pin down. Every Chinese writer is so different from every other Chinese writer, and every work is so different from every other work that I just can't see anything that works as a as a generalization that that applies. And moreover, you know, I I think what's really fascinating to me is a lot of times 
what really interests me about these stories is the way they talk about universal human conditions. It's it's always tricky to try to learn about a culture through their fiction. It's sort of like, do you really think you've learned much about Scandinavia cultures by reading Scandinavian murder mysteries or crime novels, which are you know very popular as a as a quote unquote genre? But can you really say that you've learned much about Scandinavia after reading these novels? I, I think if you assert that you do, um, you know, actual Scandinavians would just laugh at you. And then I think it's the same thing. I, I think reading these works doesn't actually teach you much about China, even though they do describe reality of what it's like to live in China with much more compelling authority. I don't think you end up learning much about China, but you do learn a lot about human nature and and what it actually means to, again, be actors of conscience against impersonal authority, which, you know, tends to be the thing that I really like to see in sci-fi. And and so I'm naturally drawn to stories that end up circling around that theme, regardless of the cultural origin of the story. Um, And so the complicated answer to your question is, I think... There is something, but I don't know what it is. And every time I try to pin it down, it I feel like I'm not getting it. And so I, I, I would have to sort of say that maybe there isn't. Um, and, 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 and what it is is just having more diversity, period, which is a collective quality, not, not about individuals. Just collectively having more diversity of stories from everywhere in the world will allow us to get a fuller picture of the human condition and the human potential um, as we plunge forward into modernity. There couldn't be a more perfect note to end on diversity in literature as we plunge forward into modernity. Thank you, Ken Liu, for joining me on New Books in Science Fiction. This has really been a pleasure. And thank you, Rob. This was uh, uh, It's always great to visit you, and uh, I'm so glad that you asked me to return. It's been such a pleasure. I've been talking to Ken Liu about The Hidden Girl and Other Stories, which came out from Saga Press on February 25th. Please subscribe to the show if you don't, uh, and consider leaving a review. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. I'm Rob Wolf, and I produce and edit the show. The New Books Network was founded by the endlessly creative Marshall Poe, and it's kept in motion with the help of co-editor and Twitterista Leanne Wilson. Keep reading, keep washing your hands, and keep your social distance. Until next time. Well, that was quite a note to end on. I know. Is that too serious? Was that too <laughs> No, weird? no, but it's, I, I, I was just like, this is the world we live in now. You know, we, we, I, I, I was um, on my tour, and it was just so awkward because it, it's really hard to overcome your social programming about shaking hands. So, you know, I was at these events, and people can't shake hands, so we sort of all do this jazz hands thing as yeah. we uh. stand around. And then, you know, of course, there's the rule about people sitting, trying to keep a meter between them. So they would sit with, you know, in every other chair or something like that. And it's just, there are all kinds of awkwardness as we try to navigate this and figure out how to keep people safe. So Um, strange. And yet, on the other hand, my husband and I were commenting how, you know, you walk down the street and you see a lot of people who seem to be acting, and we sort of envy them, like, they seem like they're not really paying much attention to any of this. And and we're, we're like, 
do they know something we don't like are they should we be more relaxed or right but but see see the question is whether they're the smart ones or 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 the very opposite it's right. hard to tell exactly right? <laughs> exactly i mean you know you, drew was saying he sees people holding and i've done this too i've seen it on the subway you know holding the bar with their bare hand and it's like even in the best of times i don't do that i like i know to... <laughs> i know so I it's like, like... And also, especially since uh, I was just reading this new study that came out today about how plastic and stainless steel seem to be surfaces that are most hospitable to the virus. They survive the longest on those kind of surfaces, which means that, you know, um, hospital equipment and subway bars are probably the worst possible surfaces for you to touch. Oh, my Um, God. So... You know, I, I mean, the, they did the study, and then I think that the conclusion was that the virus can survive up to three days on stainless steel. So that's just astounding to me um, to, to to think about how how it must be spreading around in you know, a hospital environment or you know in public transportation. Just mind boggling. Mm-hmm. 